All right, the children are going to be are going to remain in here for the Lord's table. If you'll go ahead and turn to Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. We're going to continue in our series of the Gospel of Mark. It was only a couple of years ago that we did that work in the gym. Some of you were plagued with the peeling paint and the repaint and the peeling of the paint again. And when I first came, that was one of the first things that the board wanted to take care of is redo that gym over there, the gym floor, and do something different that's going to be more permanent and that's going to be safe and more durable for our use over there. And, uh, you know, as you can tell, we, we chose to put down this... Um, I can't remember what it's called now. It's like a little latex thing, poly thingy. But anyway, it's concrete with the little t- accent tile, accent slate stuff. I can't remember what it's called now. But anyway, we redid the floor instead of putting down paint. And it's just uh, two layers of this um, clear, what is it called, Gary? Polyurethane. That's exactly what it is. I just couldn't think of the name. So, yeah, it's like two layers of that. It's very durable. It's really lasted a long time. But the problem was is that they were going to tear up our Awana circle over there. We worked so hard, you know, to get that all right. And it looked so nice. Well, actually, this paint was peeling. But, you know, it looked all nice. But we were going to have to measure all of that before the work was done. Or we would have to refigure that all together again. And uh, I remember just looking, you know, looking forward with, Baited breath, you know, <laughs> we could actually get this done and uh, get this work taken care of. And I, uh, w- you know, the church approved it. And we were just waiting for the measurements to be done. And I called Gary. He was kind of heading up this project. And I said, hey, I'll go ahead and measure all the lines because uh, I got a tape measure right at the house. So I went over there and did that. And I, I brought my tape measure over and I, I measured all the lines. And everything was great until I got to the circle. I didn't know exactly how to measure the circle because, you know, it's round, you know, and you can't do that with a straight tape measure. So me and my bright idea, I decided, well, I don't know what else to do, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time trying to figure this out. I'm just going to use my feet as a measurement. And so I uh, measured the circle, so I had, you know, this many Pastor John steps between the red and the yellow line, you know, and I just did the outside of the circle, and and, and, and I handed those measurements to Gary. He almost fell over. <laughs> Him and the board have made fun of me ever since for this. But uh, surprise, surprise, we had to measure the circle again because I used the wrong tool for measuring. And the same thing is true in regards to godliness. A lot of us come to church and we're serving the Lord. We want to really be a godly young person, a godly parent, a godly father, a godly mother, but many times we measure our godliness the wrong way. And here in Mark chapter 12, we have a scribe that comes up to Jesus, and I really believe that this is a question on his own heart, and it's sincere. And if you look at verse 28, the text says, And one of the scribes came, and having heard Jesus and the Sadducees, and probably Jesus and the Pharisees and Herodians as well, reasoning together, and perceiving that he had answered them well, he asked them, which is the first commandment of all? Which is the first commandment of all? The scribes, the Pharisees, 
the Sadducees, they used a different measurement than what Jesus is going to say here for godliness. They measured their godliness according to religious tradition, religious rituals. You know, this is not a ritual, but some people can view it as a ritual when we observe the Lord's table. Religious position, religious people, and comparing themselves to those people and say, well, I'm like them, or I'm not as bad as them, so I'm godly. And we can use those types of measurements for how we're doing and how much we're obeying the Lord Jesus Christ, how much we're being like God or living a godly life. And the Pharisees, according to Matthew chapter 22, this is the parallel count. It doesn't occur in Luke. But Matthew chapter 22, verse 35, tells us that the Pharisee, after Jesus um, outwitted the Sadducees and the Herodians and the Pharisees, that the Pharisees came back together and they sent this scribe and actually, in Matthew chapter 22, they called this man a lawyer. Now, he wasn't a lawyer as you think of today as a lawyer, but he was an expert in the Mosaic law. He was an expert in the books of Genesis through Deuteronomy. Okay? And probably even more laws, you know, even more uh, books of the Old Testament than that. But definitely, he was known as a lawyer, an expert in the law of Moses. And he, he is sent to... Jesus, and he is sent by the Pharisees to trap Jesus, to try to turn the people against him by asking him what, you know, asking him this question about the commandments. I believe, and this is an assumption on my part, that they were probably hoping that Jesus would come up with some law that's not in the Old Testament and the people would turn against him. But I can't really prove that from Scripture. But they definitely sent this man to trap Jesus, and they were using this scribe, and I believe he knew it. Mark chapter 12 is different than Matthew chapter 22 in that it highlights this one scribe, and it really gives us a lot of detail about this one scribe, and it really portrays him in a very, coming to Jesus in a very sincere way, not malicious at all. And he comes to Jesus after hearing his discussion on these previous occasions, and he has a lot of respect for Jesus. Look back at verse 28. Having heard the, the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees reasoning together with Jesus, and it says that he perceived or he saw that he, that Jesus had answered them beautifully or excellently or well. It actually literally means beautiful there. That it was an excellent response. He gave an, a great answer to each one of them. And what a humbling and contrite thing to have that, to come to Jesus in that kind of position. So I really believe he was sincere. And he had a respect for Jesus. And he really had a burden and a question on his heart about which kind of commandment, what sort of commandment is first of all. The King James uh, translates it, which is, but actually the word is, what sort of, or what kind of commandment is the first? What is the principle, what is the measurement of what God really wants us to do as His people? And Jesus is going to answer that. Now, you young people that are in here, how many of you like to put puzzles together? 
Not many of you? No, it's not as many young people in here. If you've ever visited May Smith, you know, professional puzzle put together, you know. <laughs> you go there and she has a puzzle all the time. And how, kids, how do you do a puzzle? Do you just throw the pieces on there and you work on them with the picture facing down? No. What, what kind of strategy do we, do we usually take? Don't we organize the pieces in different little piles a lot of times? At least that's how I do it. That's how Mae Smith does it, so it must be right. Okay, so we organize all the corner, all the side pieces together, you know? At least one side is straight. So we know that's the outside of the puzzle, right? And then after that, then, and we put that together, then how do you do everything in the middle? Well, you, you know, there's a barn in that picture, so you sort all the red or the white, whatever color barn that is, you sort that together. Well, there's a, you know, there's a horse and a pasture there, so then you put, you know, all those pieces that are together and you organize them and divide them. Well, the Jewish uh, scribes did the same thing with uh, the law of Moses. They actually counted and came up with 613 commandments that are contained in Genesis through Deuteronomy. There's a reason for that. I won't bore you with the details, but there is a reason for that number. You can look that up on your own or ask me afterwards. But they divided the, uh, the 613 uh, and they gave them various important, they gave them different levels of importance and they organized them in different ways. But there were 365 prohibitions that says, Thou shalt not do this. Okay? So, kids, there were 365, you, you should not do this. So, there was one for each day of the, day of the year. Okay? And there, there was a reason behind that, too. And then also, 248 uh, commandments of what to do. Okay? And so, they organized these, and different teachers disagreed with how to you know, organize them, you know, these are the laws for your slaves. These are the laws for your neighbor. These are the laws for morality. And all, you know, and they differed on what was weightier and what was lighter. And uh, and there are some that were more important than the others. In Matthew chapter 23, this occurs after this portion of Scripture that we're studying today, but in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus accuses the Pharisees and scribes, you tithe mint and all these different herbs, but you have forsaken the weightier things of the law, mercy and justice and so forth. And so Jesus even acknowledged that there was a greater principle, a greater rule or commandment to follow. And what is that? If you look uh, at verses, if you look back at verse 29, he says, "The first of all, uh, the first of all the commandments is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord." And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. The second is like in importance to it. Namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. And what is the commandment? I'm going to sum it up for you. To love God is the greatest of these. To love God, love is the greatest of these. And God measures godliness by your genuine love for Him. God measures godliness by a genuine love for Him. And I mean genuine, because there's a lot of people who say, I love God, and they don't keep His commandments. And Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. But uh, you must love God most of all. And how will loving God 
most of all or supremely affect your life. Let's look at verse 29 again. And Jesus says, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. The first way that loving God supremely is going to affect your life is you will give Him everything. You will live totally surrendered to Him. Did you catch that in verse 30? And why do we love God so much? Jesus here in verses 29 and 30, He's quoting what is called the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's actually verses 4 through 9, but he only quotes the first part of it, verses 4 and 5. And this was a very important portion of Scripture for the Jewish people. It was given to them right before they went into the promised land. They had been wandering the wilderness for 40 years. They're about to cross the river Jordan into the promised land. And God has told Moses, you will die. You will not go into the promised land. And before they do that, God has Moses write the book of Deuteronomy. The law has already been given. And Deuteronomy is kind of like, remember God's love for you. Remember what He has commanded of you. And he goes through these commandments again. But in chapter 6, he really gets at the motive of why we should obey those commandments. And it's to love God, most of all. He hits on that. And... What he's calling these people to do in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5 is to live totally committed to the Lord. Now, this was important. It says in verse 4 of chapter 6 of Deuteronomy, or if you want to just look at the quotation here in Mark chapter 12, verse 29, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Okay? It's called the Shema because that word here is the Hebrew word Shema, but it declares who God is. That He is the one true God. That He is only one God. That He is the one true God. And this was significant for the Jews because they were going into a, or going from a land of Egypt into Canaan. And the Egyptians worshipped many gods. The Canaanites worshipped many gods. The Hittites, the Girgashites, and whateverites, they all worshipped many gods. And God says, I want you to worship me alone. I want you to be totally committed to me. And he spells that out of what they must surrender, what they must commit to him in verse, uh, we're going to look at just Mark chapter 12, verse 30 here, instead of referring back to Deuteronomy. But he says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all your affections, with all your desires, with all your soul with all your emotions, the sea of your emotions, with all your love and your emotions, and then with all your mind, with your thoughts. With all your thoughts and with all your strength, with all the energy you have. Now, what he's, he's not breaking this down to confuse us of, you know, all right, so man has, you know, he has emotions and he has a will and he has thoughts and he has strength. Okay, that's not, okay, we're not looking into psychology here. What God is getting at here is he says, I want your whole being. I want all of you, not part of you. I want all of you. And have you surrendered all to Him? The scribes hadn't. They didn't even know Him. I'm going to go ahead and look a little bit beyond this. And have you 
uh, look at verse 35. And Jesus answered and said while he was teaching there in the temple how, to the people, How say the scribes that Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Ghost, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. And David, David therefore himself calleth, calleth him Lord. And whence or how is he his son if he calls him his Lord? Is the point. And he's quoting from Psalm 110. And then it says, And the common people heard him gladly. What is Jesus doing in those verses? He's exposing that the scribes, these theologians, these doctors in Old Testament law, they didn't even know who to be looking for. Because in Psalm 110, David even acknowledges that yeah, it is an ancestor, a descendant of his. Okay, It's going to be a descendant of his. It's going to be Messiah. But David reveals under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and that's actually in the text there, it was the Holy Spirit, that his descendant was going to be his Lord. That he was also going to be the Lord over David. And he's talking about someone that's divine. Someone that's God. And so he exposes the fact that these scribes who declared to be godly, they did all the rituals. They, they, they studied and knew all the facts, but they still didn't know who God was because they weren't totally surrendered to Him. When I love my wife, it's based on knowing her. That's why First Peter talks... I think it's First Peter or Second Peter 3. I can't remember right now. But in, I think it's First Peter 3. It says, Husbands, dwell with your wives according to knowledge. Right? Because if you don't know her, you're not going to love her as Christ loved the church. Okay? So we see some practical implications of this. But the same thing applies to our relationship with God. So if you look at verse 41, he shows a positive example of this. And Jesus sat over against the treasury in another part of the temple. And behold, how the people cast money into the treasury. And many that were rich cast in much. And there came a certain poor widow, and she threw in two mites, hardly anything, which make a farthing. And he called unto his disciples, and he saith unto them, Verily I say unto you, that this poor widow hath cast much cast more in than all they which have cast into the treasury. For all they did cast in of their abundance, but she of her want did cast in all that she had, even all her living. Jesus looks at this worship of this widow. She was despised. They were used by the scribes and the Pharisees and taken advantage of. But this widow comes in and she gives to the she gives to the temple. She gives to God. And she doesn't give with a bunch of money clanging on the, the opening of that box to bring attention to herself. But she comes and she puts that money in and she gives a sacrifice to God. And Jesus highlights that and highlights that she truly loved God. Not because she gave something, but because she gave a sacrifice. She sacrificed for the Lord. And the same thing is true for you and me. Love is a sacrifice. And are you sacrificing your life back to God? Have you surrendered to Him all your heart, young person? Or are you sharing that with another young person? 
Have you surrendered all your emotions to Him? And, and you want emotions and feelings that are pure and honest in your heart. Are you, have you surrendered all your strength? Or are you a mediocre Christian in, this, in the service of the Lord? Uh, it'll be okay. If it's half-baked, that's okay. But you need to give all your energy to the Lord. And we know it's not perfect. God knows it's not perfect. But to give Him less than your best is sin. Amen? I hope you agree with that. That, you know, to give less than your best is sin. And our best is not perfect. And our best is not always the same as someone else's. But we need to give our best to the Lord. And we need to give Him all our energy. And then all our thoughts. We're so preoccupied. This whole Sunday School series that we're talking about is the fact that our thoughts are not on God. And that's why our, no, our souls are so noisy is because we have a part of our mind or a part of our heart that is dedicated to something other than God. And what is that called? An idol. That's what it's called. How much do you love God? Have you surrendered all to Him? That's how you can know. Secondly, you know by how you love others. If you love God supremely, not only are you going to give Him everything and surrender all to Him, but you're going to love others best. It says, and if you look at the rest of our text here, in verse 31, and the second is like in importance, is what that is meaning, namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Jesus is the first to combine these two commandments. This is a quotation from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Two different books of the of Old Testament law, of the book of Moses. And he's the first one to put these together. And he says, this one is just as important as loving God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. It's basically a coin. It's just another side of the coin. It doesn't lose its value. It's just as important. And so Jesus highlights this fact that we, you and I must love our neighbor, the ones near us, or just other people in general, our fellow human being, as ourselves. As ourselves. There's a lot of false teaching out today that tells you that you need to love yourself before you can love other people. Wrong. God doesn't say that. He says to love your neighbor as yourself. God knows you're going to love yourself. We are selfish and we do whatever, we do what we do to promote our own good naturally. That's why in Ephesians chapter 5, husbands are commanded to love them, their wives as they love the, their own bodies. Because we do love our own bodies. And I know, you know, some guys, they sit there and jail their hair forever, you know, and they, you know, might, catch fire as they come into church. Now, I don't know about anyone like that today. But, you know, guys, we do care about eating. We care about our appetites. We care about our wants and desires. We look out for ourselves. And we can even mistreat those that are nearby us because we're selfish. And what God is calling us to, if we truly love Him most of all, is that we're going to love others as we love ourselves. We're going to and we love ourselves the best, don't we? We don't give ourselves second best naturally, but we're naturally selfish. 
and promote our own good. So we need to love others the best, not second rate. And Jesus is later going to even raise the bar even further in John chapter 15 and command us to love our neighbor as, as, as he has loved us. And that's even a higher bar, a higher standard that he's called us to. But where does this love for others come from? It comes from our love for God. Um, I bought this yesterday and just having it on the piano in our, in our house, uh, it attracted attention. I heard from some, from your mother. Uh, but it's a super miracle bu- bubbles. Canister of that, big old bottle of that. And yeah, I, I remember, uh, working in a kids camp and I would get a container like this and I'd open it up and have a wine and I would have a contest, you know. Okay, you have this group of kids, this group of kids. Try to keep the bubble up, you know, as far, you know, long. Who, who can keep it up the longest without letting it pop? You know, they're going, trying to blow it up, trying to waft, waft it up, you know, or how many bubbles can you make in a certain amount of time? And you know, you can grab a toy like this, you know, just soapy water, and a little, one of those little wine things, and you can blow bubbles and see who can blow the biggest and how long it can stay, you know, and everything. And, if I blew bubbles today, I'm, I'm sure that some of these young people would like to reach out and pop it if it came their way. And that's exactly how it is with lo- loving the Lord. It's an overflow. It overflows out of our, out of our hearts into other people. It's, loving God is loving others. And 1 John chapter 4, uh, verses 7 and 8 says, Beloved, love one another. For love is of God, and he that loveth not loveth, knoweth not God, for God is love. Beloved, let us love one another. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. And so Jesus connected this thing that they're inseparable. That they're inseparable. You can't say, I love God, and you hate your husband. You can't say, I love God, and I hate this person in church that did this to me, and I'm not going to forgive him. You can't say, I love God, and beat your children. You can't say, I love God, and never share Christ with your neighbor down the street. Loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself, are they go hand in hand. And we're called not to love ourselves more, but to love ourselves less. Love is an action. And I want to just draw your attention to the scribes again in verse 38. He says to the scribes, He says unto them in His teaching, Beware of the scribes which love to go in long clothing and love salutations in the marketplaces and the chief seats in the synagogues and the uppermost rooms or couches at feasts or banquets which devour widows' houses and for pretense or for pretending for fantasy they make long prayers and they shall receive greater judgment or greater damnation. He's exposing the fact that these scribes, they didn't love God. They loved themselves. They didn't love God. They loved themselves. They weren't totally surrendered to God and they did not love their neighbor as their self. We're called to love our neighbors, our spouses, our siblings, our children, 
To love them like we love ourselves. To love our enemies as ourselves. And even strangers as ourselves. And the applications are, I mean, it's tons of them. I'm just going to let the Holy Spirit uh, work that out in your own heart. But verses 32 and 33, not only when you love God supremely, not only will you give Him everything and you will love others best, but also you will prioritize your motives. I want you to see the response of this scribe in verse 32 and 33. Well, Master, beautiful teacher, excellent teacher, Thou hast said the truth. For there is one God, and there is none other but He. And to love Him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love His neighbor as Himself, is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. I want you to behold what that scribe just said. He said that doing what Jesus just said is greater than all the sacrifices that were being made all around Him. Just to remind you, this is Passover week in Jerusalem. Thousands of people, way more than probably what we think. Some have even estimated a million, and I don't know if that's true. But, you know, thousands of people, they're going in and out of the city. They're preparing for Passover. And they're... uh, They are in the court of the Gentiles, where Solomon's. They're there where Solomon's porch is. Excuse me, and there's sacrifices that are being made all around them. And this scribe stands up in front of all his colleagues that are there, and the Jews and the people that were there listening to Jesus. And he says, "You are right. You are telling the truth. To love God and to." Surrender all to Him and to love my neighbor better or the best I can or as myself. That is more than what all these people are doing here around me in slaughtering animals and burning whole sacrifices. That was a bold statement for Him to make. But He was sincerely asking that question at the beginning of this passage. He really wanted to know... How do you measure true godliness? And it is for by a love of God. And he prioritizes his motives here. He says, you know what? It's about the heart. It's not about the externals. I can, you know, people can come in here and they can slaughter an animal and they can give and make a bunch of racket giving to God. But it doesn't mean they're godly because God really looks on the heart. He really looks on the heart to see if there's truly a love for God. It's not about religion. It's about a relationship with God. And He totally got it. And Jesus commends him for his understanding. I came across this statement and um, this, this person says, we can love God like a cow sometimes. And it struck me because of where I live now. But we can love God like a cow. You know, we see Him for the milk, the cheese, the meat that He can give us, the food that He can provide. We look at Him and we, we look at Him as a source for the money we can get. You know, like a cow can bring money. Um, you know, we basically look at God and we love Him 
we take, you know, we love him and we adore him because of all the advantages that he can give us in life, just like we might love our cattle or whatever you might have that brings you these things. But is that really a genuine love for God? What is your motive? Do you have a genuine and true love for God? And if so, is your motive in being here today, observing the Lord's table and giving and loving your husband and loving your kids and you know educating your kids and reaching out to your neighbors, loving one another here in the church, is your motive to love God? Or is it some other motive? Whatever that may be. And then last of all, if you truly love God most of all, you'll enter His kingdom. Uh, here in the remainder of the passage, Jesus comments on this scribe. Verse 34, When Jesus saw that He answered discreetly, wisely, and I'll describe that word a little bit later, He said unto him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God, and no man after that durst ask Him another question or any question. And so, let me just illustrate it this way. This last Christmas, this last December, we were in the gift-giving spirit, you know. And my kids get into it. And uh, my, my youngest son, Titus, he's not here today, but he, he, get, he got really into it. And he would go and go downstairs and grab something and he'd wrap it up the best way he could. And, and he'd give you this conglomerated, taped-up paper mess, you know. And say, Daddy, you know, it's a present. So anyway, he would give me one of Joe's, one of Nathaniel's toys. That was really bad. I had to give that back to Nathaniel. He'd go and give me another toy downstairs or whatever. But one day, he came, it was after Christmas, he came up to me and he gave me a present. It was wrapped up and I opened it up and it was a screwdriver. It was his screwdriver. He got that for Christmas. And he gave it to me and I said, oh, that's so sweet, you know, for you to give me a screwdriver. But I already have one and I don't want to take yours. And, and I said, here, why don't you go put that back in your room? I don't want to take it. And he, all of a sudden, his face dropped. And he started crying. And he ran off. And I was like, what did I do? I didn't want to take his screwdriver. I have like 50 of them, you know, out in the garage. I don't know where they're at, but they're out there somewhere. You know, and I go and after him and I talk to him and, and find out that he was upset because... He wanted to make a sacrifice and give it to me. You know? And I rejected Him. And the same thing is true with the Lord Jesus Christ. At this time when this scribe is saying this, it's only two more days till Jesus is crucified on the cross. And in two days, love is going to fulfill all the law when He... all the demands of the law at Calvary. And this man, he got it that God was interested in a relationship with him and it was more about his heart and he got that much, but he was still, he still hadn't entered the kingdom. And if you, just to remind you of the text a little bit, in verse 34, he says, he answered, he said, he saw that he answered discreetly and he said unto him, thou art not far from the kingdom of God. 
If you're not far from the kingdom of God, that doesn't mean you're in the kingdom of God. It means you're close, but you're still not in it. And this man, in just a couple of days, would behold the Son of God fulfilling all the righteous demands of the law for sinners forever and ever. That He would be making that sacrifice. That He would make the means possible for a sinner to be reconciled with God, to be declared righteous before Him. But he still was not trusting in Christ. He still hadn't trusted in Christ yet. And so here in verse 34, Jesus is complimenting this man because he answered discreetly. That means that he possessed his own mind. He gave an answer based on from his own heart and his own convictions that he wasn't just following what all the other scribes taught. He wasn't just parroting them. But he was speaking sincere, sincerely from his own heart and he realized the truth that God wanted a relationship with him but also Jesus was compelling him to enter the kingdom. He's saying, you're, you're almost there. You're almost at the point where you're ready to enter the kingdom. But what was he lacking? Trust in Jesus for salvation. And the same thing is true for people today. God has already made it possible for mankind to be saved, for sinners to be reconciled with Him, to be declared righteous before Him, but they reject God because they hate God. There's only two kind of people in this world. I know I've quoted J. Vernon McGee. There's, there's saints and there ain't. There's another saying too. There's, there's God lovers and there's God haters. And people that reject Christ hate God. Jesus said it Himself in John chapter 16, verse 24, uh, 27. He said to the disciples, Ye have loved Me and have believed that I came out from God. I came forth from the Father and I come into the world. And again, I leave the world and go to the Father. How did the disciples love Jesus? Because they believed His claims of who He said He was. They trusted in Him as their Savior, as their Messiah, even though they didn't understand everything at that point. The same thing is true today. People that truly love God most of all will accept His gift of salvation. And it's not because we love God first. First John is still correct. We love God because He first loved us. But it is an act of love to receive this gift of eternal life that He offers us. And so I ask you, how much do you love God? Many of us think that we are living godly and we're, that we're godly and we're right with the Lord, but how much do you really love Him? You may love Him a little. You may love Him more than I do. You may love Him more than someone else in this room, but do you love Him most of all? That is what He's called you to do. And if you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, I encourage you to get in the same position as the scribe. Because this scribe realized that to love God most of all and to love your neighbor as yourself was impossible. I believe it. I believe the scribe saw that he was unable and he already had failed at loving God most of all and loving his neighbor as himself. But he was this close to the kingdom, but he needed to trust in the work of Christ. How much do you love the Lord? Have you surrendered all to Him? 
Have you given Him everything? Have you given Him everything? Are you loving others best? Are you prioritizing your motives? Or do you just go through the externals? And you just go through the show and the rituals? And have you trusted in Christ as your Savior? By the way, just a practical application is, it's not just unbelievers that don't trust in the Lord. Believers don't either. And, and, and one way that we can show that we don't love Christ is when we don't trust what He says in His Word. How much do you love the Lord? He certainly loved us. And today we're going to be observing the Lord's table because He loved us so much. Before we observe